Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to start out today's show welcoming Tyler Curtis back to the program. Tyler is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself for the sake of people who are getting to meet you for the very first time. Yeah. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me on. Um, I work at a community bank uh, here in Missouri. Um, But in my free time, I I write on economics and, and current events. And speaking of economics and current events, well, we've got uh, we've got the topic of inflation, and you know I know we're all feeling it every time we go to the grocery store, every time we gas up, basically every time we spend any money whatsoever, we're feeling inflation. But uh, it seems like there's a lot of uh, political hot potato going on as far as well, why is this happening? And it's been very interesting, especially Senator Elizabeth Warren has some some really unique ideas about uh, well, what exactly causes inflation. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the uh, <clears throat> conventional wisdom about where inflation comes from, and then we can delve into the truth of what, what really is contributing to it. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. We've seen we've seen uh, almost record rates of inflation uh, this entire year. January, we saw inflation up in the mid sevens, and we haven't really seen a whole lot of cooling off. You know, this this past month it cooled off a little bit from previous month, uh, but unfortunately, yeah, everybody's hurting. Every especially coming into the the holiday season, we're seeing prices well above uh, what we'd like to. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been kind of uh, a big political debate, especially going into the midterms, uh, pointing fingers. Uh, no, it's it's your side that that's the reason we have all this inflation. Um, yeah, and Elizabeth Warren was making the rounds on on the media, um, going on TV, and and really pointing her finger at the Federal Reserve uh, for raising interest rates in an effort to uh, to tamp down on inflation. Uh, so the Federal Reserve has been pretty aggressive over these past few months, raising rates, uh, trying to tamper demand, uh, bring down spending a little bit, cool the economy down so that we can get inflation under control. Um, but Elizabeth Warren and her uh, progressive cohort in the Senate, Bernie Sanders, have have their own theories about what's causing inflation. Like uh, they their uh, big bugaboo is uh, corporate greed. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Sanders <laughs> like to say corporate greed, and and Elizabeth Warren says price gouging. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really clear uh, how these how these actually work. What the mechanism is to uh, bring up inflation. That just uh, seems. Like a pretty uh, arbitrary uh, measure, but uh, that's what they've decided to to found their messaging on. Tyler, it seems like she's getting a little bit warmer though when she points to the Federal Reserve and says, "Well, you know, you know, if we're going to fix this, you know, we don't want you uh, doing too much." I mean, at least the Federal Reserve does have some some influence. Or I would wager even more influence than say greedy merchants out there charging us too much. But uh, let's talk about the role of policies that. Uh, you know, Senators uh, uh, Warren, as well as Senator Sanders and, and their colleagues have contributed to that have have uh, thrown gas on the fire, so to speak. Yeah, there's been there's been a total lack of introspection on their part. Now, no, but no reasonable person expects politicians to be honest about 100 percent honest about the negative effects that their their policies actually have. Um, that's just the political incentives don't line up with that. You want to say that uh, I've got this policy I really like, and there are no trade-offs, no downsides whatsoever. Um, but uh, that's just not true. 
Um, and they've really, they really uh, denied any culpability in, in the inflation crisis at all. Uh, but when we look back at the policies that have been enacted these past two and a half years, ever since the pandemic started, we really see a lot of inflationary like things that uh, that any reasonable person would take a look at and say, well, it, there's a good case to be made that these have contributed to this. I mean, uh, the CARES Act that was passed at the beginning of the pandemic was over $2 trillion, and the government never really stopped uh, spending money. In December of 2020, they passed another uh, what was that? A uh, nine hundred billion dollars, and then Biden took office and immediately signed another uh, two trillion dollar spending bill. Uh, and these are things that you know, despite the fact that that Trump and the Republicans also supported the initial stimulus packages, the Democrats were all on board too. And in fact, they wanted more money to be spent. And when when they finally regained control of of Congress and the presidency, they immediately signed in. Uh, more spending, um, and that's something that they really downplay. They they say that they had nothing to do with uh, with the inflation that we're seeing right now. You know, Tyler, as you describe this, um, I'm a person who I guess needs kind of a visual reference point to see, well, how much is this that we're really talking about? It sounds like a lot, but when you actually can see a graph and you can see how drastically that graph goes straight up, that's when you start to realize, wow, that is... This I, unprecedented, I guess, is really the best word to, to describe the kind of spending that we're talking about. Totally unprecedented. And it, it, it's hard to imagine trillions of dollars. I mean, I, the, the mind can't even can't even wrap your mind around what does that mean? Trillions of dollars. But the government did uh, spent that amount of money in, in not just one bill, but two bills over the course of a single year. Um, you know, between uh, April 2020 and then uh, January of 2021. Uh, and then there's some more spending in between. They, they didn't decrease the amount of their other spending. Uh, of course not. Uh, and Senator Sanders, especially the, the senator from Vermont, um, he's really downplayed um, the spending packages as well. He, he's been on uh, TV interviews and also on Twitter saying, oh, the Republicans want you to think that just because the working class got a $1,400 check one time, uh, then that, that that's causing inflation. But of course, it wasn't a one-time $1,400 check. It was a $1,400 check and a $1,200 check and a $600 check and child tax credits. And we also had a massive expansion and augmentation of the federal unemployment system. So people were collecting unemployment for, for 39 weeks and they were getting extra money, more money than they would have gotten um, in, you know, with the, if the pandemic hadn't happened. So um, they, Sanders is, is really, it's bordering on dishonesty when he says that, well, it was just a one-time check and that's what Republicans think are, are is causing inflation, <laughs> but it, it was much more than that. <laughs> now you point out in your article that uh, at least the Democrats though, are, are recognizing market forces do influence uh, inflation. Talk to me about supply and demand and, and from, from a consumer standpoint, um, how, how does supply and demand affect these changes in prices that we're seeing? Yeah, that's strange to actually see uh, Democrats recognize that market forces exist, uh, but they're only looking at one side. So we talked a little bit about how Democrats are, are totally denying the idea that that government could have been affecting the demand side. Um, but they're totally fine with recognizing that some of the supply disruptions that were caused by the t pandemic have, have led to inflation. So naturally, if, if um, companies are un unable to produce as much, produce as many goods and services, um, but demand remains the same uh, or it's higher, 
then we're going to see uh, an increase in prices. That's economics 101. Um, so Democrats recognize that. They say, well, the pandemic led to supply chain disruptions. Workers were at home uh, or quarantining or they were sick. Um, it became really hard uh, to ship things overseas, especially with lockdowns and and China, especially, there were a lot of supply disruptions. Uh, the war in Ukraine, you know, Democrats, there's a little bit of kernel of truth there when Democrats say that the war in Ukraine has led to supply disruptions and, and that's led to a little bit of inflation. Um, but uh, they've t they're totally denying that the demand side has anything to do with it. And they, they uh, don't recognize at all that maybe it's a lot of government policies that have had a lot to do with restricting supply itself. Tyler, give me your best take on what would be the appropriate response, and, and whether it's from government or whether it's from the Federal Reserve, if, if we want to keep inflation from continuing to, to go up, what needs to happen? Well, in simplest terms, Brian, uh, they need to get out of the way. Um, let, let the market do what it does best, allocate resources efficiently. If the government could just get out of the way, um, stop taxing so much that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is, is uh, will be raising taxes when that goes into effect, um, despite the fact that it won't decrease inflation at all. Um, <clears throat> they need to stop spending so much. We know that, that government spending, um, they uh, crowds out private investment and private spending. So if the government would just get out of the way, I think that we'd see we would see inflation improve dramatically. So what's the likelihood of government getting out of the way? <laughs> Uh, not anytime soon. I wouldn't well, bet on it. It's and and of course I'm I'm looking to it. Uh, you know the IRS taking uh, quite an interest in it. You say anything above six hundred dollars? Oh, we want to know about that. And you know expanding dramatically, eighty-seven thousand new agents. Um, I don't know. It looks like some some they're very interesting indicators. Rich, they're, they're not coming after you and me. Oh, we can we can rest easy. After all, we're oh, not yeah, greedy yeah. corporations, are we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're talking with Tyler Curtis. He is a contributor to Young Voices. Uh, Tyler, tell people where the best places to find you, first, first of all, to find your work online and also where they can follow you on social media. Yeah, they can find my work. If they go to youngvoices.com, they can find me there. Or is it youngvoices.org? Uh, sometimes mix that up. But they can find me at the Young Voices website. Uh, go to my profile. My writing is there. Uh, and then anything new that I write, I post on Twitter. Uh, they can find me there at TylerCurtis42. Very good. Tyler, have a Merry Christmas, and thanks for visiting with us. Thank you, Brian. You too. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Cody Wisniewski back to the program. Cody, it's good to talk with you again. For those meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm Cody Wisniewski. I'm a senior attorney for constitutional litigation at Firearms Policy Coalition. 
uh, and a contributor with Young Voices. But basically, the brunt of it is that uh, I sue the government for a living. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like you sue them for the right reasons. I say that as someone who enjoys uh, firearms and the shooting sports. I love the article that I have here in front of me. This is from National Review, and your article is titled "Everything We Don't Like Is a Loophole: The Gun Controller's Mantra." Now that you mention it, yeah, I think we've we've heard that uh, on a few occasions. Talk to me a little bit about uh, about where we're seeing this in play right now. What are some of the the broader gun control measures? I know the the president. Every time there is there is any kind of high profile shooting that that stays in the news headlines for more than a few days, you know, there's talk of well, we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to do that. What are the things we we should be keeping our eyes on right now? Absolutely, and and you're right. This is kind of a, a, a toy of language that gun controllers use to kind of paint anything that they don't like uh, in a negative light. And so one of the things that we touched on was that in the um, Oregon context with this new uh, law that that Oregon passed that is in, insanely restrictive and they can't even process the permits that they're legally requiring for people to purchase arms. But um, you know, one of the points of discussion there was Oregon was closed, uh, trying to close the so-called loophole on um, on transfers if background checks sit for too long. So under federal law, every firearm that's purchased through a federal firearms licensee, a, a, somebody that's licensed to sell firearms in the United States, which they pretty much have to be, um, that undergoes a mandatory federal background check. Now, there is a provision in the law that says that if that background check languishes for more than three days, that the retailer can go ahead and transfer the firearm. Now, Oregon tries to paint this as a loophole because they don't like the provision of the law, but it's not a loophole. It was specifically included in the law to achieve a couple purposes. One was to make sure that the, the it incentivized the government keeping a background check system together that would run efficiently. And second, it prevents the federal government from weaponizing that system. The, the federal government, if it wanted to, could just stop processing background checks and then could also thereby halt the sale of firearms in the United States. Just by sitting on so, them. Exactly, just by sitting on it. So without that escape hatch, without that pressure valve built into the system, it creates a choke point that federal government could exploit. So it's not a loophole, it's a feature of the law. It was intentionally included. Now, I noticed you you actually included the definition of loophole. So for those who are, you know, well, okay, so why do they call it a loophole? What's, what's the official definition or context in which that word would normally be used? Yeah, so... In the like general actual context, and you know, here I can uh, I can read up the, the definition. It is defined by I think it's Merriam-Webster as uh, a means of escape, especially an ambiguity or omission in the text through which the intent of a statute, contract, or obligation may be avoided. And so there, it's the the definition is is pointing to this kind of inadvertent omission in the law this oh well there's a, a spirit of the contract which in contract law can be a thing it isn't when you get into criminal law um but this this spirit wasn't captured appropriately what they really meant was this um and this is just an ambiguity that can be exploited now that isn't the case when you get into these these firearm laws. People think that firearms aren't very regulated in the United States just because a lot of people own a lot of them. 
but that couldn't be further from the truth. There are a ton of gun laws on the books, both federally and at ev in every state, that regulate the purchase, possession, carrying, transfer of firearms. Every every you know part of the industry is heavily regulated, and what the gun controllers are accusing the industry of doing is exploiting these um, ambiguities in law. But that's not what the industry is doing. What the industry is doing is trying to follow the letter of the law as it gets more and more restrictive in certain contexts. So, you know, another thing I pointed to in the article was this lengthy hit piece that Bloomberg ran that basically tries to accuse all these small gun manufacturers of violating this purported spirit of the law because they're selling rifles that comply with their state laws. But what the gun control movement is really trying to do is demonize them and is trying to to really advocate for their preferred policy decisions, right? The, the spirit of the law just happens to be exactly what gun controllers want at the end of the day. And their answer or that, you know, to this manufactured problem is to craft vague laws so that they can be enforced, uh, you know, in line with this purported spirit, which in reality just means that bureaucrats will have you know, whatever leeway they want to enforce it against whomever they want, however they want. So, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, then a, a manufacturer uh, who creates, uh, say, a California compliant firearm. This is this term or this this term is used to make it sound um, shady. Well, you know, it may be compliant, but they're trying to skirt the real. I guess the, the real intent is we just don't want anybody to have it. I wish they would just come out and say that. That would seem a lot more honest. You're dead on. I mean, that's exactly it. These they're they're targeting these like New York compliant rifles now that New York's passed some more restrictive laws and California compliant rifles when. What that means is that the rifle meets California law and meets California legal requirements. And exactly, right? I mean, we know, it's no secret that the gun control's movement is to ban these weapons now. I mean, there was there was a period of time where there was some debate on, you know, are they really trying to ban? Are they really trying to take away guns? Or, you know, the, another kind of twist of language, this, you know, purported moniker of gun safety, which, again, was just completely twisted in order to, to advance their mission. But we know now, right, you have President Biden giving speeches saying that they're going after. I mean, he's he's called for his so-called assault weapons ban again uh, on Thanksgiving Day. He in his speech, he called for the ban of all semi-automatic weapons. Now, the uh, press secretary has tried to cover that up and, and <laughs> fix that error and say that he meant what he meant was these so-called assault weapons. But, uh, you know, as as you know, and as many of, of your listeners know, a, a ban on semi-automatic weapons would cover the vast majority of firearms owned in the United States and is blatantly unconstitutional. But you know they're they're showing their cards as you point out you know the the loophole verbiage is used to to cast doubt on things it seems like uh, the same i heard the president use the term common sense this is common sense and i guess the implication is if you don't agree with this well then you have no no common sense but what's the likelihood of this uh, of any meaningful gun control passing it seems like gun sales have been through the roof for at least the last 3 years i don't see that changing 
I, I completely agree. I think people are realizing the importance of, of possessing the tools that are necessary to defend themselves, to defend their loved ones, to defend their communities. I mean, we're seeing more and more stories of, because media is covering it, not because they're new, uh, you're seeing more and more stories of actual defensive gun uses. And it's very clear that the overwhelming majority of Americans are have spoken and are exercising their constitutionally protected rights. And whether government tries to push for a gun ban, uh, you know, we'll we'll see them in court if they get it through. <laughs> Again, we are talking with Cody Wisniewski. Um, Cody, you you spell out in your article the the reason we want laws to be very clear is so that there isn't that ambiguity, so there's not that wiggle room for it to be misapplied or misused. Thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us. For people who want to follow your work, where can they find you? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So you can follow um, our work at Firearms Policy Coalition. So it's um, firearmspolicy.org or we're gun policy on most socials. You can follow me uh, at The Wizard of Laws with a Z on just about every social media account. All right, Cody, great to catch up with you. Have a Merry Christmas if we don't talk before then. Thank you, sir. You as well. All right. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. to moving forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Amanda Griffiths back to the show. Amanda, good to catch up with you once again. How's life? It's very, very good. Wonderful to talk with you as always and the listeners, Brian. Uh, For those who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm a contributor at Young Voices currently, and I am also a PhD student in Los Angeles, currently transitioning, though, to Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, And I write about just about everything, uh, current events, news, education policy, uh, and just recently uh, wrote about uh, some of the rhetoric around uh, election integrity and uh, voter voter fraud um, and uh, what some of those real barriers are. So I like to cast a wide net. That's a pretty hot button topic, too. So I'm actually glad we're talking about it, because, frankly, there's... (laughs) There is no shortage of really heated rhetoric. Um, talk to me. For, I, I hear stuff from both sides, the left and the right, that, that seems, uh, you know, some of it seems plausible. Some of it seems really rabid. How do you how do you figure out uh, where where does the truth lie on election integrity? Right. Well, so first of all, we have to acknowledge that both the right and the left do highlight things that are issues, right? Now, whether the the right-wing pundits are correct about every single instance of voter fraud that they cite, uh, the fact is that, yes, it does make some people uneasy thinking that their ballot might not be counted, especially in areas like where I live, California, where it takes ages to get results. And also in Arizona, where sometimes you just think, you know, 
why, why can't we, why can't we speed up the process? You know, it's a concern at the same time, we have to acknowledge that the reason that that's a concern is not because this contributes meaningfully, even when there is fraud to election outcomes. Similarly, the left, yes, it is a huge issue that people are denied access to the polls. And we need to be talking about that. That happens in very small numbers, though. And we see that with some of these proposed reforms uh, with regard to early voting and with regard to mail-in ballots and all of that, for both the right and the left who are concerned about these things, this doesn't have a partisan shift either way. So again, what we're talking about is, yes, these are real issues. The fact is, however, a lot of the rhetoric around these issues and a lot of the rhetoric around voter fraud doesn't address the real problem and in some cases makes it worse. When you start talking about the driving force of the Republican Party being a group of fascists, well, what you're saying is approximately 50% of the country is driven by a party that, uh, or rather is voting for a party that's driven by a bunch of fascists. That's not a choice. You're not giving someone a choice when you're saying you either vote for my guy or you throw away your vote or you're a fascist. Similarly, with the right, uh, there is, when, when you are constantly talking or when some of these extreme pundits, not all of them, are talking about uh, you know voter fraud you're distracting from the real issues that are keeping Americans from really having a choice outside of a duopolistic system. This is one of the things I found very appealing about your article is you you speak about uh, something that has, has frustrated me for years, and, and apparently a lot of people are feeling it. Uh, you mentioned that unprecedented rates of Americans are now refusing to align with either party. Do they give a reason why that is? You know, everyone has a different reason. One of the frustrating things is that when you look at a lot of these breakdowns, they'll say that more and more people, a plurality now of people, in fact, are saying that they're neither Republican nor Democrat. Now, they might be right-leaning or left-leaning. Um, they might be more swing voters, uh, but they're not aligning with either party. But this is always marked as independent as opposed to something like Green Party, Libertarian, Democratic Socialist, Constitution Party, what have you. It's just independent. A lot of these people, first of all, I'd like to think that we're all independently minded when it comes to when we vote and uh, for whom we vote. Uh, but yes, it's for me refreshing to see at the same time the reaction to it and the uh, the the sort of lumping everyone into one category as independent. Justin Amash and Bernie Sanders are both the same kind of independent mm. as Jill Stein. I don't think so. Nope. Uh, the people who vote for her certainly wouldn't think so. I find it refreshing, but I do think that we need to really be asking questions about why, what aren't these two major parties giving Americans? We do live in a bipartisan system. Our institutions are set up to support one. And minor parties play a key role in being a stress test on those major parties. I don't see a, an option for like a third party parliamentary system given our current institutions, but there is a major role to play. And we need to take that role seriously when people are voting 
uh, for one or the other of the you know one or the other of those parties in droves. I'm sorry to ask you to predict the future, but I have to ask you based on on what you have written about. Is it ever going to be viable? Will a third party ever? I, will will one of the two parties right now ever go the way of the Whigs and make way for another party? I mean, well, that there there was the way of the Whigs, right? So realignments happen. I think when you look at the way that our institutions are structured, and again, I'm a PhD student uh, in political science, so I study political theory and American politics. Uh, when you look at the way that our institutions are structured in this country. It is not feasible to have something like a, uh, a parliamentary system where you have multiple parties. That said, uh, I do think that when we have a, a bipartisan system in terms of legislative makeup, when we have victories or when we have large numbers of people that are not aligning with either one of those parties consistently, we need to be asking questions why did so-and-so get so many votes that we didn't expect? What are, you know, in the Georgia Libertarians case, what are these people seeing in these candidates that we're not offering? And what what can we do? How can we move our platform to court more of these voters? That's pluralism. And that's something that people who talk and talk about preserving democracy, saving democracy, just don't understand. Democracy requires pluralism. And pluralism means that we open up this, this field of discourse and this field of, of candidates to a broader array. Of, of perspectives and opinions, and we take feedback from the voters, even the ones who don't vote for us. Amanda, what's your take on ranked choice voting? I think ranked choice voting is, a, is, a, is an interesting idea. These are all interesting experiments. Um, you know, I think that we look at what works and we gauge why it worked and what doesn't, right? Just like when one candidate gets a, a significant percentage of the vote, well, why did they? So. I'm not sure that there's a right or a wrong answer on ranked choice voting, but I do think that it would give us a lot of critical insights if our major parties wanted to look at that critically and wanted to take that information seriously rather than saying, oh, well, these people just don't know what they're talking about. I admit, I was pretty opposed to the thought of ranked choice voting. It just it seemed to, to complicate elections even further. And I don't think we oh, really yeah. want to complicate them. But I I am starting to I'm starting to come around to the idea that but there has to be some way for people to register support for candidates other than just what's offered within that duopoly system. And and sure. I'm not sure that that's the answer, but uh, like you, I, I think it's something I'd be willing to explore just for the sake of what we have right now, um, has some pretty glaring flaws, doesn't it? It does. And you know what? I have to say, it might complicate things, but uh, elections are complicated. Voting is complicated. Democracy is complicated. So again, when we just had that runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, uh, with with a you know with a Georgia uh, libertarian who got two percent you know, of the vote, that's not Chase Oliver, the Georgia libertarian's fault. That is a way of trying to gauge, again, what are these voters not getting? That is allowing access to the public forum. Uh, and you know, ranked choice voting can be a part of that. But elections should be messy. They should be a stress test. I I'm always happy to see when things get shaken up, even when it is indeed messy.
Yeah, it's well, it's better than that uniparty rule that uh, keeps us peacefully, you know, uh, subdued, I guess, for lack of a yes. better word. Yes, exactly. And that the extremes of both parties seem to want. We're talking with Amanda Griffiths. Amanda, what's the best place for people to follow you on social media? Where can they access your writing? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter.com at AjaxTheGriff, A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And of course, you can check out my contributor page at YoungVoices.com, uh, where you'll see all of my recent videos and, uh, and articles as well. And I always look forward to engaging with people. So like to have fun. Have a Merry Christmas. You too. Have a wonderful holiday season, Brian. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Mike Viola back to the program. Mike, for the sake of everybody who's getting to hear you for the first time, tell us about yourself. Sure. So I am the head of analytics at the Foundation for Economic Education, where we put out content and hold programs for high school and college students so they can learn those core classical liberal economic ideas. And it works really well for folks who are older, too. I know, because I rely very heavily on uh, the uh, mailing, the emails I get from Fee, you know, every day in my, my inbox. I'm looking at an article that, uh, that you have written for National Review. Education is more expensive and less valuable than ever. And I can picture in my mind some people stopping in their tracks and nodding their heads going, tell me more. Um, where do we begin when we talk about, well, we're talking about higher education primarily, right? Yes and no. Unfortunately, we've seen this trickle down into uh, primary and high school. But I think higher education is where in recent years, it's been most obvious. It's bled into media coverage, but it's unfortunately getting worse at all levels. Wow. Well, I've, I've been aware primarily of what's been going on with the higher education uh, part of it, but talk to me a little bit about the challenges that we're seeing as it comes down into secondary and even primary education. So, something really interesting that came out at the end of October, it's called the uh, National Assessment of Educational Progress. You, you will probably see it more often, NAEP. That was an assessment typically done of fourth and eighth graders. And so, the twenty. The 2022 edition, I believe it comes out every three years. The 2022 edition found um, that nationwide in every state but Utah, your your southern neighbor, um, every state but Utah saw um, a drop in math performance in fourth and eighth grade. Um, and it was pretty closely correlated to uh, how long schools stayed closed. There were dips in reading performance as well, but those those weren't quite as obviously connected to lockdowns. It, it's maybe easier to to learn from parents, et cetera, at home. But there was a very obvious correlation to lockdowns and declining math stores. Uh, unfortunately, that's not really the only issue facing a lot of schools. You've probably seen in the news there, there's always some woke story of. Um, Something happening at, at a school. I mean, there there have been a few recently since I wrote this article um, that you know you we could go into if you want. But 
Um, I note in the article, in, in my piece for National Review, that in New York City, where they have a huge public school system, many of which have many of their their middle and high schools have competitive admissions um, to just be able to accommodate the huge differences you're going to see in the student body in that big of a district. Um, and a lot of those schools are now getting rid of that competitive admissions status or, oh. you know, there's some magnet schools that are dropping some of their requirements uh, because they believe that they cause iniquities on racial lines uh, and class lines. While that may be true, they're essentially punishing students who do well by not offering them the same level of education that they had before. Now, whether or not that's really for equity lines or if that's just an excuse for to, to expect less of teachers and students, we don't really know. We don't really know what's in these people's hearts, I suppose. But I, I really suspect that there's a weird mix of both and that sometimes this progressive ideology of leveling out individuals who are supposedly representative of races or whatever subsection, um, it sometimes serves as a pretty good excuse for people not just wanting to do the work to educate kids better. Talk to me about funding, because it seems like uh, no matter where I've lived, this has always kind of been the refrain. Well, we could sure do more if we just had enough funding and nobody will fully fund these schools. And yet I've seen immense expenditures being put towards particularly public schools. Um, You know, when you mentioned that those those scores are, are down, I mean, even beyond the pandemic, it's like maybe money isn't the answer. Absolutely. I remember um, when I graduated high school, and that was a while ago, that was 2012. So I, I don't want to present these numbers as representative. But, you know, I went on a partial scholarship to a to a Catholic high school. Um, and when I understood what my cost per, as, as a student was, um, when you take into, say, ta- the amount of taxpayer money versus the amount of private funds that went towards me, the amount of taxpayer money that would go towards a student in the public school was actually much higher, not lower than um, what was being paid at a private school. Obviously, some of that came out of pocket from from us as a private family, but um, the, the overall cost to taxpayers was actually higher than the private cost to me to go to a much better school. And in the city of Buffalo, where I grew up, it was even higher than the state average, despite having a much worse school system. So I think when you increase funding at this lower level, at at this local level, that's ultimately going to line the pockets of oftentimes union officials and superintendents and people in their inner circle. I think it's it's a, a lot of the more Keynesian economics always ends up doing that to people. Uh, when you get into higher education, we've seen tuition prices increase and increase. But it's kind of like when you when you keep buying these bags of chips that are more and more expensive, but then you open them and it's all air, right? There's, you know, yep. oftentimes that goes towards amenities. As we know, there's kind of this amenities race between a lot of um, these schools. Oftentimes um, it can go towards things like maybe career advancement counseling, which is fine, but it, it doesn't teach people those core skills that they're supposed to learn in class. And as you increase the opportunities for funding, say, either at the university level, like they can ask the federal government for money, or where individuals, students can ask the government for more and more money to meet up those hiking tuition costs, you only increase the cycle, right? The, the more 
the more you can get away with asking for, the more they'll give you, which in the future means you can ask for even more. It, it will always increase and it will always be with some sort of, but the students, but the teachers pretext that uh, eventually you just need to break the cycle and allow these prices to normalize through private means. Let's let's shift and talk about grade inflation. Uh, that's a term I really hadn't heard before, but uh, the way you explain it in this article, it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, for, for someone who's never heard of grade inflation before, what, what does that mean? It's the idea that an A today might not be what an A was 20, 30, however many years ago. Ultimately, you're seeing at larger universities that simply more people are getting A's. Does that mean everyone's just way smarter today? That would be nice, but it's probably not true. Uh, the same has been true of a lot of standardized test scores. The, the SAT, for example, now that it's essentially been gamed, uh, more people get higher scores on the SAT and it doesn't tell you much anymore. Uh, that's probably even more pernicious with those grades themselves because that's supposed to be a way that you kind of separate the wheat from the chaff or figure out who is doing however well in each individual sub subject, right? Not everybody needs to be good at everything, but we, I think we've kind of gotten to that mindset um, that if you put in the work, you simply deserve an A. And sometimes even if you don't put in the work, there was an example a few months ago at NYU of a famed lecturer there who had been there for years, had taught at other prestigious schools, uh, had written a one of the uh, field standard textbooks on organic chemistry. His students complained that his class was too hard. <laughs> they raised enough of a stink that eventually he got fired. And a lot of their descriptions were the, the grades I was getting aren't consistent with me getting into a good medical school, which is not that, that's not a, a thing as far as an assessment of how you did, right? Um, a lot of the hardest classes in college were meant to be weed out courses. I got a C in calculus. I, I shouldn't have gone into a career that required that calculus, and I didn't. I, I got the hint. Uh, people kind of need to, to understand that um, – college isn't there to make your to guarantee a destiny for you you actually have to put in the work when you're there and your grades like it or not may in fact be a reflection of the mix of skill and work that you're willing to put in as an indication of whether or not you're actually qualified for the career you want so it sounds like this this may be a call for uh, you know a return to to standards including you know hey maybe school is supposed to be a time where it's it's a little bit tough you have to dig deep and prove yourself as opposed to simply showing up and getting a participation trophy completely agree i think generally speaking if you're getting bad grades the best solution is to work harder or pick a different path, not to fire the teacher, or just get everyone an A. Here, here. Again, we are talking with Mike Viola. He's the head of analytics at the Foundation for Economic Education and a Young Voices contributor. Mike, where can people follow you online? Uh, you can find me at mf underscore viola. Someone, of course, got to the version without the underscore for me. Um, you can find me there, or sometimes uh, we post some videos from scripts that I wrote on the Foundation for Economic Education YouTube channel, which 
you should absolutely check out as well. All right, Mike, have a, have a wonderful holiday season. Great to talk with you. Thanks a lot, Brian. Same to you.